All right, welcome to another episode of Piecing It Together, or I should say, welcome to another episode of Breaking It Apart. This is our second episode of this new special series that we're doing here on the show. Um, we didn't plan it this way, but this is the second time that one of these is going to happen when there's a re-release in theaters. Um, I don't know how that worked out, but it did, and it's... Uh, Pretty sweet way to do things. But before we get into the episode, uh, I do want to remind you guys at the top of the show, make sure you are subscribed to Piecing It Together on whatever your podcast app of choice is. You could also rate and review us on iTunes. That would be awesome. Five stars would be even better. And uh, follow us on social media at PiecingPod. You can uh, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, you could also join our Facebook group, Piecing It Together, a movie discussion group, which I'm still... Uh, Wanting a new name for it, but uh, we haven't figured one out yet. We will one of these days. Uh, but right now, I've got more pressing issues, getting my computers all back up and running. I told you a little bit about that last week uh, during the 8th grade episode, and that's still happening. Um, but, you know, we're, we're kind of back up and running for the most part. Still got some issues I'm working out the kinks of. Um, but it's kind of a perfect uh, episode to talk about with my computer issues because... Uh, my computer is basically turned into Hal and is uh, trying to kill me, I think. But yeah, we are talking about 2001 A Space Odyssey. This is a breaking it apart, so of course we're doing the opposite direction of how piecing it together normally works. We're going to be looking at 2001 and figuring out what movies were inspired by it. Um, which is not exactly a difficult thing to do. It is difficult, though, to uh, narrow it down more so because there are so many movies that were inspired by 2001. I mean, the entire genre of sci-fi, uh, as it exists, is basically, it's, it's come from 2001. But as you'll hear in the conversation I have with returning guest Chris Cranock, who somehow, uh, he did the Big Lebowski one with me too. So far, he's the only one who's done a Breaking It Apart episode with me. Which is funny because uh, when I first um, came up with the idea of doing some backwards episodes like this, uh, I talked to Ryan Darty about it, I talked to Chad Clinton Freeman about it, uh, a couple other people as well. We'll get we'll get to those soon enough, but uh, it just so happened to work out this way. And uh, I'm glad it did because Chris is a huge, huge fan of Stanley Kubrick. And so it totally made sense for him to be the one to do this episode with me. Um, and also it gave him an opportunity to talk about a, uh, well, an opportunity that he's had uh, that has to do with Stanley Kubrick. So definitely listen for uh, the end of our conversation where he gets into that. You're going to really want to hear this story. It's really pretty amazing. So uh, without any further ado, I'd say let's jump right in and talk about 2001 Space Odyssey. All right, so back on the show with us again today, we've got Chris Cranach. Chris, glad to have you back. I'm happy to be back. All right, number man. Number five. Yeah, is that right? I think, yeah, this is number five. Man, I'm bad at keeping track of these <laughs> things, okay. I brought some champagne. It's okay, fine. good, so. good. That's good. <laughs> You also happen to be the only person I've done a Breaking It Apart with so far. We're yeah. planning on doing a bunch of these little uh, special episodes, but uh, 
I it's cool that we're doing another one. I mean, you got plenty to say, I think, on this one. Yeah, I'm I'm totally fine with you not giving anyone else a chance to be a movie buff. <laughs> You're laying your, yeah. your 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 claim on this yeah, thing right I'm now. I'm totally fine with you not you know offering anyone else a chance. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, and this movie in particular uh, is going to be. I'm excited. I'm really yeah. truly excited to be able to talk about this guy. Well, I'm glad you're here, and of course, the movie we are talking about is 2001: A Space Odyssey. Stanley Kubrick's movie just was re-released in IMAX, and so uh, I got a chance to see it there. Um, you know, before we jump into any of it, it's funny. I, I had, I think, I told you this too. Uh, I had said that I haven't seen it since I was a kid, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I barely remember it, and blah blah blah. Then I'm sitting there in the theater, and just like it's all just <laughs> unfolding in my eyes, and I'm like. Did I ever see this? <laughs> like, you know, like yeah. I think I would remember more of this, but I don't know. I still am not 100% sure if I saw it, but it was like a long time ago when I first saw it. It was really cool getting to finally see it for real sure. and especially in IMAX because yeah. it was it was beautiful. Yeah, for its 50 year anniversary, yeah. we got to came back to IMAX. And what's funny too is uh why this is such a great film to talk about uh, is kind of what you're describing is that I think all of us think we've seen it. Yeah. Because it's in <laughs> everything we see yeah literally everything almost everything i'll say almost everything so it's probably has the the widest net of influence of any movie uh across genres it's bled into our pop popular culture and maybe we see it in commercials we see it in tv shows that aren't science fiction this episode is going to be like minimum three hours because we have so many movies to talk about (laughs) yeah i'm going to kind of pull like a vladimir novikov and just have like a big butterfly net trying to capture all the influences we're going to talk about yeah yeah hour seven i think we'll we'll uh, we'll take a break have an intermission (laughs) no no i'm gonna keep it as concise as possible i promise so 2001 um you know obviously this is a movie uh, we're joking about all the the movies that are influenced by. It. I mean, really, all of science fiction is so influenced by this movie. Yeah. Um, why do you think this is such an influential movie? What do you think makes that? That's you know, that's starting off with a loaded question because yeah. it's a it's kind of a uh, it's a perfect storm of mm-hmm. uh, of a movie in terms of its influence and why it went on to become so crazy influential. So the first thing is that science fiction was not taken seriously in almost any realm. You sure. know, even literature and we had Arthur C. Clarke, who was the co-creator and writer of the story of 2001 A Space Odyssey, who was writing pretty sophisticated science fiction, but it was a minority. Um, and then there was the the technical aspect of the movie, which was so far beyond anything yeah. we'd ever seen. 200 and, I think 204, 205 uh, special effects images, yeah. which by today's standards is small, but back sure. then was mind-numbingly you know, amazing in 1968. The news probably has that much now. Yeah, yeah right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, the fact that we were in the middle of the space race uh, in the late 60s. Yeah. Um, that, that, you know, that was on all, all of our minds. That was the next great you know, chapter. Uh, and then also, too, that it's so philosophical and artistic, even though it's so brilliantly uh, technical. Mm-hmm. It's also such a poem, you know, kind of a poem of a film yeah. that it's kept people thinking about it and talking about it. Uh, and, then, and then the final thing I'll say is just the iconic imagery. The characters sure. of Hal, for instance, have just kind of gone into our brains so deeply and penetrated fears that have only deepened as technology has increased. You know, we were looking at AI artificial intelligence then in 1968, and it's only become more of a reality today. So, I and mean, there's just a million reasons, and it was yeah. just the perfect place at the perfect time, and it seems to be the perfect movie. It's also a, a huge risk-taking movie. Oh, my goodness, like, yeah. Yeah, aside from the science fiction influence, I think... Um, any filmmaker that's come since then that wanted to really push the envelope. I mean, this is 
this is a major <laughs> yeah. point in cinema, you know? Yeah, it's a strangely avant-garde movie. Yeah. That's the thing that, you know, it's it's kind of it's famous Stargate sequences when, you know, Dave goes down the wormhole, essentially. Um, that was a huge you know, hit with the hippie movement in the late 60s and I'm the drug sure. culture. They would go and just watch it on, you know, on acid just to experience that scene alone. Yeah. And the movie was even repackaged and rebranded to, to help it sell better because it was not doing very well until the youth market really saved it. So all these, you know, hippies were coming in and they put the tagline on it, the ultimate trip. <laughs> and that was not by accident. It was to market to the drug culture. So, um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's a risk. It's a huge risk. Yeah. And I mean, some people consider it pretentious, of course, but I feel like it's gone. It's it just struck a chord so deeply with what we're interested in about our origins and our species that I think it kind of transcends that. That uh, we've definitely warmed up to it. I think some audience members were polarized in the beginning, and now it's been recognized as you know universally great. Sure. Yeah. And so yeah, we just we just want to go and experience. It still puts us in the stars. Like it's the most. I I've never been put more in the stars from a film than that film including today yeah and also um because of the three acts like they 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 do such different like things they 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 take you to such different places and so it, it kind of gives you a lot to chew on you know <laughs> yeah. it's like rather than just one main story you're getting these three things that are of course all you know connected but right. Um, they're, they're visually and, uh, acting and storytelling yeah, and it's conceptually. Ve- yeah. You know. It's a very, very interesting way of putting together so many different threads mm-hmm. and which again is another thing that is, you know, a, a major influence on films that have come since. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, what's interesting about that film too, is you're right. They're so different from each other. The, the, the portions. Yeah. Um, and but and there is a lot. I mean, especially like on a philosophical level, we've been debating it for fifty years now. Sure. But really, if you really look at that movie, what's most astonishing to me is really how little it does. Yeah, there's not much that actually happens per se. Sure, the plot isn't convoluted. I mean, you I could sum it up with you know within a minute of like the actual things that happen. Which is also probably the biggest criticism I think of the movie yeah, from people who don't like it. Yeah, but, yeah I agree with that completely. Yeah. yeah, but it's I mean for people that are fans or people that are admire, I mean it's astonishing. Yeah. With how much how potent such a small amount of stuff was. I mean, there's only 88 minutes of dialogue. Yeah. Uh, in the entire film, which is two you know, two and a half hours with the with the intermissions. Wow. Um, that there's no dialogue for the first 25 minutes, and there's no dialogue for the last 25 minutes. And the dialogue that is there is somewhat irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's basically a silent film. Yeah. So to be able to be uh, such a classic, almost like a classical film, where yeah. I mean, it's, you're telling a story purely visually, like the Chaplin era, and yet to make something so advanced that I think we're still behind it. Sure. I really, do, I don't think we've caught up to 2001 yet. It's crazy, man. I, <laughs> it's so crazy. I it's mean, a trip. I, yeah, 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 it's true. Oh, man. Well, you know, before we get into uh, any of these puzzle pieces, um, one question, and this is probably like a sin of film criticism, <laughs> but um, do you have a favorite of the three segments of the film? Oh, man. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, I do, certainly. Um. Well, I'll just preface, preface that by saying that I'm always in awe of the opening. Yeah, because it's just has has a lot of balls. You yeah, know what I mean, it's like wow, uh, and it's extremely well done. And the imagery, of course, we have the music and the bashing of the skull with the bone, and the yeah. famous match cut. You know, jumps four million years. Yeah, uh, from you know the man's first tool to his last. You know, amazing stuff. Stuff. Yeah, you, yeah. But 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 I do have to say that um, the Jupiter mission in the center with uh, with Hal. 
mm-hmm. is probably my favorite. Okay. Uh, I think Cow is the most charismatic villain in cinema. Yeah. Uh, even though he's a red dot. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I think the implications of that sequence, and then the thematics of that sequence, when, when Dave turns Hal off, mm-hmm. is my, with my favorite scene in the film. Nice. Yeah, when he gets back through the emergency airlock and then goes and turns him off. And Hal's essentially pleading with him to not turn him off. He wants to survive. Yeah. And that's such a, uh, again, a simple, like deceptively simple idea. Yeah. Because you really realize that man's technology has reached a point where it's become um, sentient. It's it's trying to survive just how we would. Yeah, absolutely. So just like so, human. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's, there's a lot of disturbing implications in the scene, and then it's so masterfully done. The yeah. red light and the singing of Daisy as his voice slows. Yeah. There's just no more the- thematic part for me anyway. It's a great very, film. A great very part. cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, no, I, I'd have to say the opening for myself. But, Favorite, uh, yeah? Yeah, but uh, we will be talking about Hal a lot through this episode, mm-hmm. I'm sure. Um, sure. Yeah, his, his, him alone has influenced a million movies. Yeah, and you he, know? it's funny, he's, he's in it. Fairly briefly. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, he's really not in it much. He's the kind of the Hannibal Lecter is, is yeah. in uh, Silence of the Lambs for 16 minutes. Yeah. Which is always blows it's everyone's exactly mind. exactly like that. Yeah, how yeah. is in it? I, I'm not sure of the exact minute count, but very, but relatively briefly. Sure. Right on. Well, uh, why don't we go ahead and get into some of these movies that were inspired by oh. 2001. <laughs> Where do we start? Yeah, right? <laughs> well, you know what? That's your burden because you're going first. So. <laughs> okay. All right. Um. Well, the thing is that, you know, I had a list about nine miles long, and I thought, well, there's no way to listen to all this. So I tried to narrow it down. Mainly, I'm gonna, there's a couple other things, but I'm mm-hmm. going to kind of pop into the sci-fi realm. Mm-hmm. I want to kind of stick there because that's the most literal influence. Sure. Uh, but Because it gets extremely abstract and random. Like a Super Bowl commercial could be mentioned, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, what's funny, though, is uh, something that seems like a polar opposite uh, cannot really deny its influence, and that's just going to be the Star Wars franchise. Sure. Um, not only is it takes place in space, of course, that's kind of irrelevant, but it's just the imagery, yeah. uh, the the set and the model building yes. uh, is extremely similar. And I think that 2001 set the bar that we still adhere to today of what it looks like to be in space with a cruiser of any kind, any kind of ship. Yeah. Ships are always reminiscent of uh, the 2001 ships, uh, Discovery in particular, despite um, them, I don't think, being as creative. I think the the 2001 ship Discovery is a really unique ship visually, mm-hmm. and uh, we got really close to mimicking it, but I don't think anyone's ever made something as unique. Yeah, I, I had Star Wars down as well on my list. Um, yeah, because specifically the ship, spe- <laughs> uh, specifically all of that space imagery. I mean, to this day, that is how we're designing our spaceships yeah. and everything. Yeah. It, it's it's pretty wild. Um, the foresight to to come up with something that, I mean, even in real life spaceships, a lot of them look fairly similar. I mean, obviously we don't have spaceships, space stations to that, you know, level Extent, or anything, sure, but, yeah. um, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're even, even in real life, there, there's a lot of design choices that seem to be called from that. <laughs> well, that's, what's really interesting is, uh, Stanley's goal really was to make the proverbial good sci-fi film. That's yeah. how he opened up his negotiation with Arthur C. Clarke. He's like, I want to make the best one that ever existed and that will always be the best. And I think amazingly he did that. I don't know how he pulled it off. Um, But uh, their biggest concern was plausibility Mm -hmm. and reality. Uh, There's something of this fantastical story somehow had to be rooted in such detail. And that's something I can go on about infinitely because the kind of research that Stanley did was crazy. A small tidbit is that he actually reached out to numerous 
uh, companies that existed in the in the mid to late sixties and said, you know, drop what your product would be like in two thousand and one, and like we'll yeah. incorporate it subtly into the film, and you can see, you know, Howard Johnson is in the film, IBM is in the film, blah 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 blah. Pretty fa- fascinating. The plausibility is huge, and I think that's why there it's now become the standard is sure. because they, it works. We can we understand like the framework that 2001 gave us was so plausible and so realistic that to stray too far from that after the fact, I think yeah. would be too unbelievable. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it especially with getting companies on board with, with yeah. helping to design things, because then you're, you're talking about the imagination of the companies that really are building things in our real world. And yeah. so, and uh, corporations aren't always the most imaginative, but, <laughs> no. but uh, yeah. I, uh, yeah. I personally went, I personally went through the documents of the different companies that wrote back to him. Yeah. And some were extremely conservative and ended up being very interesting and, and thoughtful. And some were just ridiculous. Some were absolutely insane. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. And then so much of that really wasn't even incorporated in the film because the film was whittled down over a period of time to kind of become the simplistic, you know, classic masterpiece it is now, sure. but it was much more complicated and convoluted and things like that. And so a lot of that information has been left on the wayside, but it, some of it's kind of snuck in there. And it's forever, for me, stapled uh, the reality. To, you know, it stapled the movie to a, a real place for us to launch from. So it's sure. kind of cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, with my first puzzle piece, I'm going to go with something, uh, something pretty recent. Um, and that is Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Murph. Yeah. Murph. <laughs> Murph. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, Mur- Murph definitely uh came from a place of this kind of a mindset, I think. Yeah. Um yeah, no, the Interstellar it looks at, at um at outer space with a uh kind of an optimistic view of that there is answers out there and there there is um you know, things connecting us all and all yeah. that kind Too of stuff. Too many answers in yeah. my opinion. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, um, I didn't like that film particularly much, yeah, very much. I, I wasn't the biggest fan of Interstellar either. Yeah. And I think we're two of the few who. <laughs> yeah, people didn't. think that it's brilliant, and I it's not. Yeah. You know, it's very simple. And, yeah. I mean, and, and when I say simple, it's a nice way of saying stupid. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, but I mean, it's I mean, it's stunning. I mean, yeah. That's the thing is, Christopher Nolan is 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 a genius, but yeah. he just can't make a good movie anymore, which breaks my heart. I kind of uh, agree with you, man. Yeah, because <laughs> I mean, it really does. Like, I was a big supporter. Of course, I loved his films all the way up to 2008, Dark Knight, and that yeah. was, I think, he peaked, man, and that was been a slow decline. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, 2001 is Chris Nolan's favorite film. Yeah. You know, he recently just did a um, a 70 millimeter kind of cleanup, a you know projection. Oh, that's right. Yeah. He was the one that that like uh, set that in motion. Huh? Yeah. Which I approve much more than of Steven Soderbergh's like quick edit he like he like cut right. out 45 minutes and i was like leave that movie alone steve <laughs> make ocean doing, 70 man? or whatever i just stop <laughs> cutting that movie but yeah so yeah interstellar is a great puzzle piece, puzzle piece because it's definitely like a it's a, like a spiritual it is uh, companion yeah and i like how it also um another thing it deals with is uh the difficulty of of dealing with with outer space basically and the heroism and all that and um which dave has to uh you know be a hero there towards the end of the film you know yeah um and kind of yeah yeah and and it's but it's not heroic in the sense of you know battling space aliens or something (laughs) like that you know it's more of like just the 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 general difficulty of being in outer space and dealing with outer space you know yeah it's true i mean the thing another thing that interstellar has is a certain plausibility because uh, you know right right. yeah i think there is a um 
there like I said, because he's such a brilliant craftsman, Christopher mm-hmm. Nolan. Even I don't think if he delivers in certain areas or whatever, I'm just being picky. You know, in reality, he's an extremely talented man, and his films are always very well made and well crafted. So I think a lot of that is it's is that movie's strength is sure. that it's so well crafted and there's almost a a kinship to its um its plausibility or it's kind of rooted in real life you know plausible things just needed less water planets i think <laughs> yeah. that's all. need less matt damon <laughs> no but you know it's uh yeah it's just um it's kind of like where 2001 succeeded in being uh not emotionally redundant or emotionally oversaturated and not mm-hmm. sentimentalist yeah. Uh, I think that really the the miss the part that was blown on Interstellar was its its sentimentality. Yeah. And they try to whittle like that's this is a big problem of all movies in general is they have these really big ambitious ideas which I'm yeah. always for you know I mean bigger the better. Yeah. But then they try to connect the individual audience member by giving us like some throwaway connection. Yeah. It's like you know love of the daughter is what binds the universe. Yeah. I'm like whatever. Okay. Yeah. It's Sometimes not, it's just not necessary. I, I don't care. I have no interest. <laughs> It's not, I don't care. That's, that's, these are such huge ideas that must we scale them down to like this interpersonal thing? Yeah. It's like 2001 had the courage to really make it about its idea more mm-hmm. than about its characters and its sure. characters serviced its greater idea. It is much more about the ideas. Oh, that, yeah. That's one of the things it's the ideas and just really spectacle in a lot of ways, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. it's. Such a such a spectacle film, without you know, a doubt. Which is why seeing it IMAX is such a lucky thing. I'm just so happy you got a chance <laughs> yeah. to, you know. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. I, I was pushing everyone I knew to go. I yeah. got actually a couple people that I bugged so much that they actually went, and they did not regret it. So that's yeah. always nice. Nice. Uh, and the thing is, it, it, it's a hard film to watch on your cell phone. You shouldn't. You, know, <laughs> yeah. you. It's a. It's a whole atmosphere that you should really try to. You know give yourself over to. Yeah. Uh, and then I always try to put myself in a, in an audience of 1968. Like, yeah, it's a little slow at parts, but this was the first time they saw space the way in at that scale and that yeah. with that legitimacy, with that craftsmanship. And uh, I mean, it was mind melting. It's mind melting today, let alone an audience of 1968. Yeah. You know, speaking of watching on your cell phone, um, a, a movie that might have been a puzzle piece, although I haven't seen it yet is mm-hmm. first man. Oh. And um, that's a, that movie I, when I saw the trailer on my phone, I was like, eh, I don't know. I'm kind of interested, you know, but saw it in IMAX. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. Like, yeah, you the know trailer what I mean? moved me. Yeah. I'm so totally. excited. Yeah. And the thing is, I don't know if I'm biased because uh, I'm kind of interested in space. You know, uh-huh. I'm, not, I'm not like a sci-fi nut. I right. think I, I, I like Star Trek The Next Generation in 2001 and, that's, and Solaris, and that's kind of where I like yeah. get out of it. <laughs> um, but, you know, that for, I'm so fascinated by the reality of space travel and like how insane it was that we did it, that we right. just like got on a little tin can and went to the moon. Uh, and that to me, space travel represents what the human species can do and be sure. And how, and the thing, the sad part is that we usually fall short of that the majority of the time, you know? Yeah. But that's what we're capable of. And that's truly amazing to me. So yeah, the first man trailer blew my mind is yeah. it, and it really drove home. The insanity was that we had to start from scratch and we just somehow made it work. It's nuts. Yeah. Um, that will be a puzzle piece. It's a future puzzle piece. <laughs> yes, absolutely. When we do the next, uh, yeah. when the uh, IMAX 3D version comes out, we'll <laughs> right. come back and do this again. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so uh, what my, would your uh, next puzzle turn? piece be? Yeah. So I'll do one that's a little less obvious because Star Wars was a little obvious. Um, I'm going to go with a, a Duncan Jones film called Moon. That was going to be my next one. Oh, I'm killing I'm sorry. <laughs> killing me. Killing me. No, that's awesome. Wait, well, I have 90. Yeah, me, that's why, fine. Why don't you have Moon? No, no, no. That's fine. Go ahead. All we'll, right. we'll both talk about it. Right, let's just talk about it. Okay. We're sharing a puzzle piece here. Yes. All right. So 
Uh, Duncan Jones, obviously David Bowie's son, who David Bowie was also crazily influenced by 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, sure. His breakout hit being Space Oddity. Yeah. Not an accident there. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, Moon, I think, extreme, very cleverly avoids the pitfalls of a movie that basically can't avoid its influence. You know what yes. I mean? You, you know, you you smell two thousand one on it, yes. And yet, I really do think it very cleverly transcends it. It doesn't pander to it. It makes its own film with its own voice. Uh, you have like the classical music against this the sky, the juxtaposition of this ancient, not ancient necessarily, but kind of this classical music to something so futuristic, which is a, just a beautiful combination. You know, that yeah. was something that was so successful in two thousand one. The waltz. Uh, compared to these gigantic spaceships floating through space, was a stroke sure. of genius. So to kind of like reference that subtly in mm-hmm. uh, two thousand, oh, in a uh, moon, pardon me, and then also to have, of course, Gertie, uh, voiced by uh, Kevin Spacey, yeah, uh, he who we shall not name, yeah, <laughs> um, and uh, but to great effect, and went against the cliche of it being an evil computer, and was actually a very beautiful and helpful computer. Yeah. So I think it took kind of those um, obvious things, like I said, you can't avoid. And it really reinvented it, and it made it a star. It made it a Sam Rockwell movie. Oh yeah, because two thousand one isn't about Kier Dulé. It's not about Dave Bowman. You know, it's yeah. not even about Hal. It's it's. But this film's about Sam Rockwell. Oh yeah, and and Moon did a great job, and Sam Rockwell did a stunning performance. Oh yeah, one of my favorite things he's ever done, and I mean oh, he's yeah. one of my favorite actors. So yeah. I mean, uh, that's quite saying a lot. Um, but yeah, Moon, amazing movie. Um, another movie that also looks from what did that come out about 2008 ish i think around yeah, I think yeah ballpark yeah so from 2008 looking forward it <laughs> looks very much realistic of what the future is going to be in the same way that 2001 was looking forward as to what the future is going to be yeah certainly absolutely you know? yeah uh duncan jones is uh, his imagination on that really really show you know shine through um not so much on his most recent movie no, but, was, uh, yeah, no. yeah but I, like, uh, I liked source code which oh no yeah one source liked. code was really good i liked it yeah everyone hated it and i was i, I was still code. with him yeah and then now no good yeah i don't know, I don't know what's happy, happening man, man. Uh, i was it did he make didn't he make warcraft oh yeah he did war of warcraft as that well is... which i did not see no. i know a couple of people actually did like it but yeah. uh i mean generally speaking you got pretty apart <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean you can't listen to critics every time yeah that's I mean, true people i mean uh, speak, critics didn't like 2001 right i say that's this i was gonna have a nice little tie in there yeah uh, i think i mentioned to you before we started recording 241 people walked out of the new york premiere of 2001 yeah. a space odyssey and one of those people was the actor rock hudson who said can someone explain what the hell this movie is about and before storming out um it's amazing yeah it's true and so the film became was very lukewarm it actually was called unimaginative uh which is hilarious wow. to me it's yeah that's the thing is there's you know these are concepts uh that still boggle the mind yeah and, it, and it's because it's the eternal it's about the eternal questions of our existence that's sure. why it's timeless yeah uh not only is it on a technical level something that holds up you know it's not cheesy or outdated yeah uh which they really were striving to achieve and that's why we get the black monolith it's yeah. like you know at first i don't know if you know this but at first hal was supposed to be a little robot that like work, you know, like moved around the ship, and they're okay. like, "Well, that's going to be outdated next week." Yeah, yeah. And then the alien is another thing that they had really trouble. You know, they didn't want to show this alien race, so the monolith represented one of their tools, mm-hmm. just how the bone represented one of our tools, or how was the more most sophisticated tool. Of, you know, there's like a big theme there. Yeah. And the monolith was so simple, and because it needed to be timeless. Yeah. And that's where we got a black rectangle, essentially. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I mean, it was just all out of the desire to make this thing last, and people were not ready for it, and it was definitely mixed. 
yeah uh, when it came out now really now only in the last maybe 20 years has it you know now ranks every top best films of all time list yeah well you know that was, that's a good um uh transition to my next puzzle piece then uh about uh the monolith uh mm-hmm. being the black rectangle uh this one isn't a movie um but it's smartphones oh yeah yeah the design of smartphones which let's be real here these things are basically changing human the, the course of human existence <laughs> without a doubt I, I mean you know and uh that's basically what the monolith did and it looks quite a lot like a smartphone <laughs> you know yeah and guess what uh 2001 also invented iPads yes, and Skype <laughs> yep absolutely <laughs> so yeah you there's i mean I mean, there are, there's actually an iPhone commercial that is like a send up of 2001 it has the phone floating and people yeah. you know monk i think it's even like i think i remember that yeah dun 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 it's like all you know so i mean verbatim off the opening of the film so yeah no without yeah. a doubt we're we're molded by that monolith oh absolutely yeah th- this is the monolith and you know it's funny i was uh I wanted to make a meme. Maybe someone else will do it because I don't have time right now. <laughs> but uh, r- right now, the the trend in smartphones, freaking Apple started it with the iPhone X, and now uh, Google's copying it with their new Android phone, is to have a notch cut out for the uh, the camera, mm-hmm. which kills that monolith-like yeah. design. And I'm like, I, I want to I make a uh, Photoshop thing of the monolith <laughs> with a notch at the top cut out and see if it has the same impact. No, it will not. It will not. It's no. supposed to be a freaking rectangle. Yeah, man. there's something really, per- it, it's perfection is really what yes, makes it iconic. Exactly. You know, I mean, to have a divot cut out of it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. And that's, you know, I mean, just, you know, about the monolith itself, that choice always kind of reminds me of the ending of Sopranos because mm. it just cuts to black. Right, right. And uh, and the thing about 2001 in general, and also about the monolith in particular, just like the ending of Sopranos, it's too specific and too iconic to ever be actually duplicated. Mm-hmm. Like, 2000, everyone like mimics 2001, but they could never really rip it off because it just would be too obvious. Yeah. Because it's so singular. Like, well, it's one of the brilliant things about the ending of the Sopranos, which is a whole other episode for another time and another place. Sure. <laughs> but, you know, you just... It, because nothing's there, you are left to infinite possibilities. Yes. And the yeah. monolith represents infinite possibility. What is it exactly? What you know, what does it do exactly? We get a sense of those things. But from a design standpoint, from a conceptual standpoint, and then practically in the film, you know, it's un possibilities are endless. Yes, yeah, unknowable. Yeah. And, and it makes the cell phone kind of a brilliant connection because these phones are so powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what's your next puzzle piece then? Oh man, okay. Um let's do something a little crazier here. Oh, okay. I'm gonna probably go with this is here. This is kind of a weird one. So I pulled, yeah. But the Cohen, the canon work of the Cohen brothers. Okay. Uh, the Coens are huge uh, Stanley fans and admirers. Uh, a puzzle piece in particular I'm gonna use is going to be uh, Burn After Reading. Okay. And you guys are like, what? <laughs> now this is only for the super nerds out there. But uh, there's actually a sound effect taken directly from 2001: A Space Odyssey. That is used in the opening and closing of Burn After Reading, and it's a direct reference to that to 2001 and Stanley. They actually design things, uh, shots. They take sound effects from Stanley's films, and they incorporate them in most of their films. So Burn After Reading actually takes a, a sound effect of a pod door opening and puts it inside their film. Nice. So there you go. Where's that at? Is that? That's in like the opening credits, like it... when there's like the Google Map type vibe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's like a sound. There's a sound effect that's from 2001. <laughs> that's awesome yeah yeah well that, that's uh that also um i think another w- way to look at that particular puzzle piece is uh coen brothers movies a lot of the times the 
the overall meanings of things are very much open-ended, yeah. um, which is something that, you know, I'm not sure if that was something that was happening before 2001 with a lot of movies. Probably, I'm guessing, but still. Rare. It, yeah, yeah, I would imagine rare, and that's something that a lot of, uh, you know, these kind of auteur filmmakers do a lot of the times nowadays, and it kind of is a uh, a division between people who like more just, you know, mainstream movies and people who like stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, where they're they're open to not being given all the answers. You know? Yeah, and that's the thing is two thousand one is such a unique um kind of example because it's so out there and it really takes you like you, you know, like I've seen the movie like probably fifty times. You know, uh -huh. I've seen it a lot. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of forget, I take it for granted like how risky it was and how brazen and artistic oh, sure. it is. It's an art film essentially. And uh, you know that that kind of has a bad connotation to it. An art film, people kind of you know turn their nose up to it, but it's considered an American classic. Sure. And we're still celebrating it. So I don't know if I don't know if the strange ideas are really the thing that turns people off. I don't know if it's the approach to certain things or how things are done. But I think uh, 2001 is just so awe-inspiring that it really just gets mo most everybody can appreciate something about it. Sure. And yeah, no, I think the Coens definitely took something away from the open-endedness of 2001. Yeah. And I know you're here you go. You're going to laugh at me, but I mean, they're heavily influenced by The Shining. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, Barton Fink is essentially oh, yeah. The Shining. Yeah. <laughs> and um, what's funny is I could actually see the seeds of The Shining in 2001. Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot of parallels between that film and his later film, The Shining, that he took elements that he developed and, and maybe beta tested in 2001 and then honed them for the horror genre with The Shining. Sure. So, yeah. Sure. Um, well,. I'm going to, uh, because as you know, I love the Coen brothers. Yeah. So I'm going to take it to the exact opposite, to a movie oh. I did not like, okay. um, but I do think was very much inspired by, and uh, that is Mission to Mars. <laughs> you remember <laughs> yeah, that Oh, one? yeah. Yeah. Um, terrible movie, but, um, you know, <laughs> finding the structure on Mars versus finding the structure on the moon yeah. uh, sets off the, you know, the plot of the rest of 2001 once we get to that point. Sure. Um, which was what set things off. And I think just finding that structure on another planet or, right. you know, the moon, but, uh, is, is huge, you know, huge influence. Yeah. yeah. Directly, basically directly from that idea. Yeah. The same launching pad, which is not nearly as artful. Yeah. To <laughs> <laughs> uh, say the least. <laughs> and that's really funny. Cause I mean, 2001 was actually inspired by a short film or a short, pardon me, a short story of Arthur C. Clarke's called the Sentinel. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but to say that it's, I think Arthur C. Clarke brilliantly said that it's like comparing an acorn to an oak tree, you know, they're ra you know, radically different things by the time it happened. But, uh, the only real, you know, the inciting incident, basically the first incident that, uh, launched 2001 was from the Sentinel, which is they find a structure on the, an al of alien and tantric creation on the moon. That's right. Yeah. I did actually read that when I was uh, reading about this movie yeah. about, about how it's really just a little seed of, That's of it. Yeah, yeah, what it was based on yeah. the rest of it was something new. Yeah, because yeah. Stanley and Arthur C. Clarke wrote the screenplay and and uh, novel simultaneously, which is this is the kind of a rare thing in Stanley's career. That would have been an he... interesting uh, room to be in. And... <laughs> well, they well they wrote it. They were actually in different places. They would actually send memos oh, really? back and forth to each other. Yeah, it was really interesting. But yeah, he Stanley would write parts of the script and send it over for approval, and he'd write parts of the novel and send it back to Stanley, and they'd actually come up with the the story that way. Yeah, uh, which is super rare for Stanley because that's the only film he didn't base something on like on a pre-established book. Sure. So it's probably like one of the most original Stanley films that has no basis in anything else. It's probably 2001. <laughs> and, but yeah, I mentioned, uh, so, but yeah, that little, that thing, finding something on the moon uh, was the basis for all of it. Yeah. And then Mission to Mars, I think, saw the, the brilliance in that and yeah. tried to do it again. Yeah. <laughs>
Let's answer all the questions. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. yeah, any questions? Not after you watch this movie, man. <laughs> oh, man. So uh, what's your next puzzle piece? Uh, so this is kind of a cool one. I'm, I'm going to uh, go back to sci-fi in a second. I'm going to do one that's not, not quite sci-fi. Uh, it's going to be Terry Malick's The Tree of Life. Okay. Uh, have you seen that one? Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm a big Terry Malick fan, even though he's like now in a stage of self-parody, I think. <laughs> yeah. um, and I don't care. I'll watch him float a camera around Austin, Texas until I die. Like, I don't particularly care <laughs> that he doesn't make coherent movies anymore. Um, and uh, Tree of Life uh, has these bizarre kind of space sequences uh, and to classical music, yeah. to Mozart, to opera, and things of that nature. And it's basically showing our, you know, that... I, in my opinion, anyway, this is speculation, but that this the individual life doesn't necessarily matter, but as part of a larger fabric that goes into the infinite, goes into space. Sure, sure. And I think that theme uh, is somehow connected within the 2001, maybe a little bit more, kind of like where I think Interstellar failed. Mm-hmm. I think that Tree of Life was abstract and artful enough to pull it off. You right. I, mean? I think you know, I think Interstellar tried to fit too much into kind of a conventional sci-fi blockbuster bottle. And that those are not good ingredients together. But Tree of Life is a very artful, open-ended type film. And so I think it, it taking something and making it more emotional uh, than it was in 2001 uh, was done well because of its, its, its approach and its style. And then, of course, you have just the space imagery, which is hauntingly similar and, but equally beautiful to the 2001 imagery. Yeah, absolutely beautiful imagery for yeah. sure. Um, that kind of makes me think of there's there's a lot of movies and I'm kind of drawing a blank right now. I didn't write any of these down, but off the top of my head, just movies that do have that kind of crazy imagery. You know what I well, mean? Yeah, I'm telling you, like it's real. This is a hard movie to talk about because it's in every, it's almost in everything. Yeah, I mean, there's imagery in some way, shape, or form um, that has been inspired by this movie. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what's cool. Um. Okay. Well, my next puzzle piece then is another movie. Uh, Actually, this is one that I wrote down that's inspired okay. by the imagery, and that is Contact. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the wormhole sequence. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, which is uh, one of the coolest things I think I'd ever seen at that <laughs> point. And, um, yeah, no, it, it's there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's absolutely there in 2001. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, the thing is, Contact's a great movie. I think you know, a Bob Zemeckis film. I really like it. And it's not the most popular, I guess, because it's a little long and slow for some people. Mm-hmm. But to me, that's like good sci-fi. You know, it's sci-fi should be about ideas, I think, not about the the tangibles so much, you know? Yeah. Uh, 2001, of course, struck great balance in that regard, but Contact's excellent. And yeah, the Stargate or the wormhole sequence um, is, I think, extremely similar. Yeah, to a, to a degree also with Contact, um, uh, I forget, I haven't seen it in a long time, but the thing that they had to make or whatever. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that kind of reminds me of the tools and whatnot, you know, yeah. uh, the alien technology and all that. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was like one of my favorite parts about Contact is like that they have all this footage of like this, all this uh, uh, like VHS tape footage that's hours and hours and hours long, but she only fell through for like five seconds. Like, yeah. There was a little couple twists in there I thought were really excellent. That was really cool. Uh, and again, that film, again, it kind of, I don't think... Every anyone's had the courage yet to approach a film almost as academically as as two thousand one did because sure. again we're you know she's going to find her father and as again there's like this whittling down to this emotional level of like this person loves this other person and they have to yeah. go through the galaxy to get them. It's probably Spielberg's fault, huh? It's definitely Spielberg's <laughs> fault. Yeah, it's his fault for everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing is, I feel like space and and these ideas are are. Um, 
they're big enough to maybe make more movies about them as opposed to the characters within them. Sure. And that's a doubt. That's a, I think I'm not saying that people don't think these big thoughts, these other filmmakers, but I think it's just so scary yeah. to make a movie without that kind of emotional core today. Yeah. It, uh, it's, it's too risky for them to even try. So that's, it's very similar, but again, polar opposite type approach. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what's your next puzzle piece? So I'm going to have to go with the, the Russian masterpiece Solaris, okay. uh, made by Andrei Tarkovsky. He's uh, one of my you know, filmmaker favorites. And I think uh, one of the few people that I'd, it's appropriate to call like a master, like there's a, probably there's like a handful of masters out there, Stanley being one of them. Uh, but uh, Tarkovsky, uh, he made this wonderful sci-fi film that is very, very philosophical. Just very briefly, it's about a guy who who goes on a space station and he orbits a planet and the planet projects the, the, the crew members deepest desires into them. Right. And he starts seeing his wife, his deceased wife, uh, roaming around the ship. Uh, and it was kind of a strange, are you sure you're not talking about event horizon? I am. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Sam Neill. You know, it's funny. The imagery of hell from event horizon is terrifying. It is. It's <laughs> the scariest thing that's ever happened in the universe. Uh, <laughs> uh, that movie makes no sense at all. No, I love it's, so the, it's pretty good though. Yeah. I love event horizon. So I'm really not sure if I'm not describing event horizon, but no, the, uh, but Solaris, uh, I think, the thing about 2001 is it legitimized sci-fi. Yes. You know what I mean? It legitimized it. It said, hey, this, on the world stage, you can make sci-fi art. This is something, there's like so much infinite possibility here to comment about things that are earth, the earthly, things about the humanity. We can go out to the distant stars and make a comment about those things. So I think that grabbed the attention of other uh, prominent filmmakers. And you had someone like Tarkovsky, who, like I said, was another master. He ended up making a lot of sci-fi films. He did Solaris. He did Stalker. He did, um, what is it called? The last one, he did The Sacrifice. And that's going to be kind of a futuristic film, but Nuclear Holocaust. So he ended up doing, like, actually experimenting quite a bit in sci-fi. Mm-hmm. But Solaris uh, really owes a gret, uh, or debt, pardon me, of, adi- of gratitude. Well, a gret of attitude. I can't talk at all. <laughs> a, a debt of gratitude, pardon me, to... Uh, to 2001 because it, it uh, I think, picked up on the philosophical elements that were kind of where 2001 left off. Right. And the potential that 2001 said, hey, you have all this room to play. So another master kind of picked up the ball and made something very unique, very specific to him and very beautiful and kind of iconic in its own right, but not quite as um, accessible. Mm-hmm. Despite all of what we're talking about, 2001, it's still accessible. Right. You can go see it at an IMAX theater. And that was kind of the ingenious aspect of Stanley. How did he make an ultimate, bizarre, crazy sci-fi action art film and that we still go watch it and almost all audiences can enjoy it? Sure. That's crazy to me. So Solaris is a little bit more exclusive, maybe a little bit more of the art crowd or the foreign film crowd, but definitely thought-provoking and brilliant. I actually got to admit, I haven't seen Solaris. It's so good. Yeah. yeah. One, one of these days. Don't I'm... watch the George Clooney remake. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Add it, that to my Netflix queue. Yes, <laughs> for all you listeners out there, if you type in Solaris based on my recommendation and George Clooney pops up, that's the wrong movie. It's probably a good thing you just mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't watch that one. Yeah. <laughs> or his uh, shorter 2001 version. Don't do that. <laughs> nice. Um, all right. Well, uh, my next puzzle piece is, um, I'm going to bring it back to Hal again here. Okay. Well, I guess, uh, in some ways to really just the whole film, but, uh, the alien series, um, and specifically alien covenant yeah. um, as <laughs> where it has gone. Yeah. Um, which I, do you like alien covenant? No, no. Okay. <laughs> I loved alien covenant. 
I recognize that it has all the same problems as Prometheus, of, which is like, a, yeah, a no. stupid crew and just a r- pure ridiculousness. Yeah. But I love David's story. I, I absolutely love it, yeah. and I, I think in a lot of ways that this is a uh, kind of a next step for a Hal like character. You sure. know, of, of the creation of, of humans that you know is turning on their their creator and yeah. whatnot, and um, and yeah, I, I think uh, that character is so great. I I. Really hope that that series that he gets to do another one. I know Ridley Scott wants to, yeah. um, but will, I, I, I don't know. I don't, especially with the mergers and all that stuff. I have that's a feeling. It's, I have a feeling it's not going to happen. It's going to get shelved. Yeah, that's too bad. But I mean, the, Michael, the David I mean, character is so so interesting. I think. Yeah, Hal in the Michael Fassbender body. Yeah, ain't so bad. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Say yeah. what you will about Hal, he's not very attractive. Michael yes, Fassbender, yeah. on the other hand, there you go. I'll watch him do anything. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> no. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, the, the the thing is, like, Hal has so much potential, mm-hmm. and that I think he should be explored in other avenues in some way, shape, or form. And I think David is a great example of that. I do think he's a great character. I was super intrigued by him during Prometheus. Yeah. Uh, which is a bad, bad movie. Yeah, <laughs> Prometheus not... See, I feel like Covenant made Prometheus a little better, but it's still not that's a very fair. good movie. That's fair. Yeah, I was going to say, that's playing <laughs> yeah. fast and loose. So yeah. Like, not that. No, so, uh, but yeah, no, and... But the thing is, when we when we rag on these movies, I hope people know yeah. that like these are not bad films. Like, you know how oh, hard course. it is to make these movies? Like of they're course. they're kind of they're brilliant and they're you know craftsman wise are insane. Yeah. So there's so much good in them. But yeah. like as for me anyway, the reason why I'm a harsh critic on certain films is like when movies are that good, they should be great. Yeah. They should be smart. They should say something or be meaningful in some way or, or even really not so incoherently insane. Like something like you said, Prometheus had all kinds of stupid plot holes and stuff. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, when things are that good, I expect a lot more. Right. When things are bad, I don't care. Well, I think that that makes the difference between just a casual moviegoer and a a real film fan. Yeah. Someone who expects a lot from, from the movies they watch, you know? Yeah. And, and yeah, we're not just shitting on movies just to shit on them. You (laughs) know, it's like we're, we, there are in most movies I do find, I mean, there's some that I just, can't see anything in it that i like but (laughs) yeah but most movies at least there's a good performance there's a good idea there's it's well shot some there's usually something uh you know keeping it uh making it worthwhile sure and the thing is on these big budget movies these crews are the best in the business oh my god so i mean the thing about ridley scott is like that guy can make a movie oh yeah my problem lies in when he walks to the coliseum and says it's not big enough yeah it's like it's 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 like a (laughs) philosophical problem like i love movies so much that yeah, like again, like Chris Nolan, like I acknowledge that guy is a genius, but I, I, and because he's so good, I want better movies. Mm-hmm. Be better. Yeah. Like you're not Michael Bay. I don't care what Michael Bay makes. He can make Ninja Turtles seven. I don't yeah. care. It doesn't mm-hmm. bother me any. It doesn't have to be good. <laughs> you know, just make it. You know? Right. But yeah, when I watch Dunkirk or something, or I watch you know, you know another film of his, like I want as good as I know he can be. Yeah. So yeah, I don't mean to crap on movies. I love movies. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, but yeah, Prometheus was a. I, I was so excited for Prometheus, not to get off on a tangent, but like, yeah. the trailer was impeccable. Yeah. Like the really trailer was. was so good that I was actually I would also excited. argue that the first 15 minutes were so good. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. It basically just turned into a fist fight though. That was the biggest problem. Uh, it was like, wow, you created us. Boom. <laughs> uh, and I was like, oh God, I was so heartbroken. But, um. But yeah, no, no. I mean, uh, two thousand one, especially in the in the sci fi genre, just lives in these things. I mean, I mean, I even say the first Alien, yeah, uh, the very first Alien. Um, you know, 
it was it's definitely a, a adrenaline infused version uh and it just went on to influence james cameron who did aliens and then yeah. went on to do other you know terminators and things i mean 2001 lives in all this yes uh be, and a big part of of why is because these filmmakers were impressionable were young when they saw 2001 sure. and it literally blew their minds and has just kind of been on their work ever since. I feel like the fingerprints of Stanley Kubrick live on most of these modern directors' films. Oh, for sure. We can, you know, if we took a black light to them, they'd pop up everywhere. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if it's conscious or subconscious, but I, I think most of it's subconscious. I think that it just, just like me, my influences bleed into my work. I try to purposefully ignore them so I don't mimic them. I, I try to find my own voice. But the reality of it is, is I'm a, a culmination of those people that came before me and, sure. and you know, made up my influence. So that's definitely the case going on there. It was very subtle ways that 2001 influences things. Yeah. But then there's also the overt like reference and nod. And those guys aren't afraid to do that either. Sure. So yeah, the Alien series for sure is very Kubrickian. Yeah, definitely. Kind of, I think in its, its, its terror element. And oh, it's, yeah. It's inhuman element. They, Stanley was sometimes called inhuman or things, <laughs> things like that, which I disagree with completely. Just, right. just watch the end of Paths of Glory and tell me it's not human. Right. Uh, but uh, but there is that calculating academic quality, and I think Alien kind of carries that with it. Sure. So. What's your next puzzle piece? All right, so the next one is going to be... I have so many to choose from. <laughs> Who even knows anymore? I'm going to kind of maybe just do another interesting, kind of a weird one. Um, but the, uh, the Midnight Movie Circuit, uh, which I'll include Eraserhead, and I will include El Topo um, in that. So El Topo was the first big midnight movie film. It's a, a Mexican uh, film, and it's kind of an acid Western. It sounds very strange, but it's very religious in tone. Mm-hmm. And I feel like uh, there's a secular quality to 2001, but it also has kind of a spiritual. I think people can find spiritual things in it oh, yeah, if absolutely. they want. And I think uh, that El Topo kind of took that to kind of, zero to 60 to cranked up the volume a bit and made a film. I had the courage uh, to make a, basically an avant-garde art film out of a, a normally um, limited genre. You mm. know, it was an acid Western uh, Westerns were so indelibly a part of the American landscape, the, the American cinematic landscape. And uh, just like sci-fi was kind of ridiculed and its own little thing. It's a little sure. Sure. El Topo was like, well, no, I, there's an art, there's art in this and there's imagery and there's, and there's ideas here. And I think that uh, that out of the Western genre, I think that El Topo is the 2001 of mm. of the Western genre. Um, and, if it, and it was made in 1971, and the filmmakers acknowledged a direct influence from from Stanley's work, of course. So I definitely think it lives there, but it definitely finds its own voice. And then what's really cool about Eraserhead, small little small story here, is that uh, it was made by David Lynch. It was David Lynch's first feature film. Took mm-hmm. several years years to make. Came out in the late 70s. Um, Heavily influenced by the atmosphere of the middle section of 2001 A Space Odyssey with Hal. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely way more avant-garde and more horror in its approach. Uh, but that actually ended up going on to become one of Stanley's favorite movies. Yeah. And he would invite people over to his theater, like a personal theater, to show them Eraserhead. <laughs> and that got back to David Lynch, who, of course, just gushed and melted into a pile of tears. <laughs> yeah. Because that's such an amazing <laughs> thing. And then when Stanley went on to make, two, uh, pardon me, went on to make The Shining... He actually showed his crew and cast Eraserhead wow. and said, "Like this is what we're going for." So they kind of—it's like a snake swallowing its own tail. They kind of sure. went back on each other. But yeah, the midnight movie era, I think, was uh, in general not just those two films, but all of it. It was a huge uh, thank you to two thousand one, 
because as we mentioned earlier, the hippie movement uh, and the drug culture made 2001 the major financial success that it ended up being because yeah. it was kind of sketchy if it was going to make its money. Because it was kind of it was a ten and a half million dollar movie, which was crazy in 1968. Sure. Um. Anyway, so but the midnight movie craze then became a cultural movement. People went and saw movies at midnight. They waited around the block to watch Pink Flamingos, and they waited to watch Eraserhead. And there was a kind of a cultural movement of the 70s that I think just in general is is because um, the culture responded to 2001. It's interesting um, because so you're basically like you're getting at the um, like weird artful movies Mm -hmm. becoming a thing that people are seeking out and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas at the same time, it's also kind of like a blockbuster, you know, it it, just. (laughs) <laughs> gave birth to blockbusters, you know? Yeah. And so it's interesting, it kind of really splits out in both ways. I mean... It, well, that's the thing is, you know, yeah. Stanley was friends with Steven Spielberg, uh-huh. uh, but his favorite movie was Eraserhead. Right. So I think that sums it up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, one of my favorite stories is... Uh, uh, Steven Spielberg would send Stanley copies of his movies to get like approved. Like he'd get Stanley's opinion before he ever gave it to any, you know, company. Yeah. Uh, and then he asked him, he said, Stanley, you know, you're working on full metal jacket. Will you send me an early version of it? And then he said, no. <laughs> and he goes, well, I send you mine. He goes, well, that's the difference between me and you. <laughs> God. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, Stanley definitely admired that Steven hurts. Spielberg. Yeah. Oh yeah. Burn, man. Burn. No, no, Stanley definitely admired Steven Spielberg, and who shouldn't? I mean, everyone should, you know, admire him to an extent. Uh, but I think the kind of filmmaker Stanley wanted to be was a David, a David Lynch status. Yeah. He just somehow figured out to reach a broader audience. He somehow sure. was able to balance an art film and a blockbuster simultaneously, and that's kind of make. He's kind of alone in that. Yeah, that's interesting. That that's really cool. Yeah, I like that one. Um, right on. Well, my next puzzle piece um is actually a video game. Uh, I'm not sure. Are you a gamer? I am not a gamer. You're not a gamer. I okay. once played Halo one time. Okay. No, I'm just I used to play with a friend of mine, but I don't know yeah. anything about games at all. Okay. <laughs> well, it's a game called Portal. Have you ever heard of it? Oh yeah, I've I, I, te- I played it one like I that one yeah. I really did play one time. Yeah. It was really cool when you like hop through the different little portals. Yeah. 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 Portal is a really cool, unique game. Um, and really the main thing is the uh, the main antagonist is Glados, which is a total Hal, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. copy. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it really, it, it drives you through the game and, and it's constantly like lying to you and it's kind of <laughs> like, you know, and you realize you don't realize it from the beginning, but as you're continuing, you're realizing, oh, this, this thing does not have my best interests oh, at hand, cool. you know, and, yeah. uh, it's really unique and interesting the way that they do it. So the game's got some really great writing, mm-hmm. um, compared to most video games, you know? Um, but yeah, GLaDOS is totally born from Hal. Absolutely. A hundred percent. That's cool. I was going to say, weirdly enough, I'll add kind of do an impromptu puzzle piece. Sure. Uh, because of that, because of portal and games and speaking of halo, mm-hmm. halo. Okay. I don't know if you remember, did you, did you ever play it? Uh, you know, I never actually did get into the halo series. Okay. So it's okay. It's fine. Yeah. But, uh, like I said, not a big gamer, but it's yeah. fun to play. Uh, but there's a little blue orb that floats around that has like a Hal-esque voice, a computer-like voice. Sure. And it's basically Hal, but blue. Yeah. And it's, so yeah, Hal uh, is definitely, he's like a, he's kind of like a uh, benevolent, you know, he's good and bad. He kind of helps you out and he kind of betrays you. And then yeah. when you have to kill him, he does turn red actually. Yeah. Now that I'm remembering it. <laughs> so yeah, he's pretty Hal. Nice. It's, except for like in a wall, he just, he's like an orb that flies around. It makes a lot of <laughs> sense for video games. Um, if they're trying to elevate to another level of storytelling, yeah. 
um, to look at the masters of film. Sure. You know what I mean? Sure. I, you know, you don't go and say, oh, we want to make this better than, you know, story-wise better than uh, just a video game. Let's let's look at Michael Bay movies. You know what I right. mean? Let's, sure. let's look at the... Uh, Let's look at the real classics. Yeah, stuff, without a doubt. You know? Without a doubt. Makes yeah. so much sense. <laughs> All right, what, what's your next uh, regular puzzle piece? Okay, then? my next regular one. Well, I'm going to go with kind of a twofer here a little bit. Okay, um, cool. I'm going to do some modern films because it's easier for me to get lost in the old stuff. Sure. Um, the new Blade Runner. Okay. And the old Blade Runner, actually. <laughs> nice. that, yeah. But yeah, Blade Runner, this, the franchise. Sure. Um, again, that's going to be another Ridley Scott. I think yeah. he left a huge imprint. 2001 left as him as, a, as an artist. Um, but also Arrival. Okay, yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah. and that's, I think these are really atmospheric um, puzzle pieces. Like Arrival is, is suspiciously good. Like when I saw it, I was like, how, why is this so good? Right, you know, right. I was like really kind of... And people were a little bit disappointed in it, and it kind of had like a Chris Nolan twist vibe it, to it. It had such a Chris Nolan twist. Yeah, and I didn't twist. love that about it. <laughs> yeah. But there's so much good in it. Yeah. You know there I mean, is. there's like, Arrival's a good film. It's yeah. not a great movie. It's not perfect, but man, is it good. Yeah. And, uh, and the, I think, yeah, the kind of the withdrawn performances mm-hmm. of Amy Adams, because she's a great actress. I think she emotes beautifully, but she's kind of reserved and... And, and closed in. She kind of reminded me of a female Dave Bowman, mm. you know, who internally has every battle. If you, there's a part in 2001 when, when Hal won't let him back in and you know, won't let him back into the space station. Sure. And he's furious. And there's one part where he, you can see him just swallow his anger. Yeah. He like kind of loses it. You know, his friend just died. Hal's gone insane. He's stuck in the middle of space. And for like only a fleeting moment, does he really have yeah, an emotional? He's keeping his cool like the whole time up until that. Yeah, and he just kind of, yeah. and it's not any. He doesn't yell. He just swallows and just has like a minor shake. Yeah, that's like as intense as he gets. And then he says, "Okay, I'll go through the emergency airlock." You know, and it's like, what a great iconic moment that whole thing is. Sure, but uh, yeah, the Amy Adams performance number one, I think, uh, ties Arrival to it uh, again. With uh, I, I think the same goes for uh, Rygaz. And uh, his kind of muted performance, yeah, uh, as K or I J? think that was his name, K. K. Yeah, I loved the new Blade Runner, by the way. I don't care at all about the old one. I didn't love the yeah, new Blade really? Runner. Really? Well, yeah. except Jared Leto. Yeah. If you <laughs> cut Jared Leto out, you're gonna you're gonna think oh, I'm no. really weird here. Oh no, <laughs> he was my favorite part of it, <laughs> and I'm not a huge Jared Leto fan. I despise I thought, Jared Leto. I thought he was so interesting that character, <laughs> and you know, I think part of the reason I like that character yeah. is because. <laughs> I walked in that movie so sure they were going to tie it to Alien Covenant. <laughs> I was like, this is the creator of David. Just, but you just wait and watch. Like, like, you know, I was like, this somehow is going to tie into David. Get somehow. that fan fiction. Going. Yeah. I, I, I wrote a whole fan fiction in my head the whole time, but maybe I wasn't even paying attention to the movie. Maybe the, mo- the movie was yeah my fan fiction, but yeah. Yeah. No, no I- that, that's hilarious. Quick here. I'll tell a quick, funny story about, uh, about Jared Leto. So I don't like Jared Leto as you probably figured out. Sure. And I was in Hollywood one time and I was really drunk, like super drunk. And I was just going off on Jared Leto. And I don't know, who knows? I just, I don't know why. I just, someone mentioned him. I lost my mind. And I was drunk and kind of trying to be funny. So I was like, I was like, I hope he dies. Like, I was like saying like really insane stuff, you know? Yeah. I don't mean any of it. I don't want him to die. And the guy I'm talking to looks at me and goes, he's my brother. <laughs> and it was. Oh, it turned out to be his brother. So I was like, I'm sorry, man. And that's, uh, that's just a little lesson. Don't, you don't know who you're talking to in Hollywood. Yeah. Just tread lightly. <laughs> but uh, but I stick by my by my criticism of his performance in that movie. I think I think he's the worst part of uh, Blade oh, Runner yeah. twenty forty nine. 
But I think I loved that movie. But yeah, very uh, very Kubrickian. Yeah. Um, definitely. I think atmosphere wise, tonal, it's slow and paced. Two thousand one's very paced. Yeah. And I think which is to its benefit in my opinion. Um, and then those you know, Arrival and uh, twenty forty nine are very elegant, very paced, thoughtful, beautifully shot. Uh, I think technical achievements or or exceptional. Uh, they're more conceptual films than they are plot films. Yes, yes. So I think that they owe I mean both a lot to two thousand one. I think if I was to go back and watch uh, twenty forty nine, looking for that, I would have liked it a lot more. Yeah. Uh, because it is it's beautiful. It, it's got some really cool ideas. It, yeah. it, the score, of course, you know. Um, I just was Deacons, expecting yeah. some really interesting story elements, and it didn't quite go anywhere for me. Well, okay, that's fair. Yeah. You know, that's fair. I, I I will acknowledge that. For some reason, I I really worked for me. I was excited yeah. to know about the K character, and you know, I don't care so much about the lord of this franchise. Like again, I'm not a big fan of the original. Sure. So I was like, I don't care who, if you're the kid or not. It doesn't. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was more interested in just him slowly. I think realizing his humanity. Sure. And, have, I love and that, his, that you know, was good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And even that's more, maybe a more positive view of Hal, who slowly realizes his humanity. Yeah. It's funny because Stanley once described like what happened with Hal. He, he very rarely explained anything. He once, uh, he once quoted uh, Nabokov, the great you know, Russian author, and said, uh, I meant what I wrote. When people asked Nabokov what he meant, he said, I meant what I wrote. And he said, if I can transition that to my film work, I meant what I showed you. I mean, I I meant what I showed. Sure. Um, but he actually said that Hal was having basically a an emotional crisis because he was facing his own infallibility, his own fallibility. Yeah. Uh, and that's so yeah. So uh, maybe the the K character in forty twenty forty nine is gradually understanding his humanity, and it's a positive thing. To where I think the more human Hal became, the more insane he became. Sure. So that's kind of interesting. that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> Right on. Um, well, my, my next puzzle piece, and this is actually my last puzzle piece. Okay. Um, I decided to save this one for last because uh, it, a lot in the way that you uh, sometimes tend to bring up The Shining a lot. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to bring up my favorite movie of all time again. Okay. Um, uh, adaptation. Oh, so good. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe it's it's more more of a simplistic view, but just the the fitting all of existence in, into it, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. which in a lot of ways, uh, you know, 2001, you know, starting from that beginning with, with the apes and, you know, and, mm-hmm. and as they, you know, learn and then all the sudden words of the future, you know? Yep. Um, yeah, I, I, <laughs> yeah. I love that so much about the, the opening and, and then of him trying to just fit everything into this novel, you know? Sure. Yeah. yeah. And also too, it's about evolution. Yeah. And so is 2001. Yeah, that's true. You know, 2001, uh, Again, this is still debated, so I don't. I'm not the authority on this, but I really feel strongly that there's a lot of evidence that this is about our evolution as a species that is um, pushed forward by our tools. Mm. Uh, I that's to me what the film's actually about. Sure. Uh, and of course, it the sci-fi element is that the monolith is pushing us. You know, maybe that there's an alien influence to our evolution. That's yeah. that's the sci-fi part. Yeah. But everything else is almost documentary-like. Yeah. That we are evolving because of our tools. Look at our cell phone. Look at the thing that's changing everything. Yeah. Uh, and even at the end, you know, Dave becomes the star child. He becomes the next step of evolution. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's because our tools, we've outgrown our own tools. Our sure. tools have become so sophisticated that then, the, you know, by hell, and the hell is now trying to survive and kill us. <laughs> yeah. So we've reached the pinnacle of what we can create tool-wise. Sure. So then the monolith must come back in and give us one more push. Yeah. And we get the hybrid 
man baby yeah. that is so famous at the end. So, yes. I mean, if you look at it that way, it makes a lot more sense. But the roadmap there is crazy. Kind of like adaptation. Yeah. It all ties in so beautifully, but oh, it's yeah. a wild ride on the way. Sure is. Yeah. Yeah. I love adaptation. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. So good. <laughs> I actually did think of one more, but I, it's your turn, so I'll let no, you go no, ahead. Go ahead. I got a million. You, you go next. This way you can spread it out a little okay, bit. Okay. That's fair. So, that's yeah. fair. Okay. Uh, my next one is Spaceballs. Nice. <laughs> nice. I'm a big uh, big Mel Brooks fan. I think he's hilarious. And Spaceballs, uh, so do you remember the beginning of Spaceballs when it's just the, the ship? Yes. And it's like comically long? Yeah. It's yeah. it's the exact same shot and composition as when we first meet the Discovery ship in 2001. Yeah. But it's like five times longer. Yeah. And it's just making fun of how big that and long that shot is and how slow 2001 is. So, yeah, I mean, it's 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 brilliant. It's a brilliant send up of 2001. That's great. What? what... <laughs> That's great. That's funny, too, because I think that I'm trying to remember if on this show we've ever done where there's a parody you know what oh I mean? yeah i don't know yeah that that's that might be the first time that's come up yeah um that that's that's hilarious <laughs> but yeah the opening of Spaceballs always kills me being such a huge 2001 fan oh yeah like no one's laughing especially yeah. like a more contemporary audience that like no one doesn't know that reference yeah and i'm just like cracking up oh, yeah. and i'm laughing harder the longer the shot goes because it is like so silly and now i was just in imax you know a couple days ago watching the movie chuckling to myself yeah. trying to stay quiet because there's this this four minute shot <laughs> So, Mel Brooks is the best. He's man. the best, man. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's the best. He's so good. So good. Oh, well, uh, yeah. So I got I got one more puzzle piece, unless I think of another one along the way. But um, uh, and this one's kind of ridiculous. Okay, go for but, it. But I like it, ridiculous. It, when you were talking about the tools pushing us forward and all yeah. that stuff, um, the ancient aliens theory. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's 2001 is the ancient alien. Yeah, I know it really exactly. Is, yeah. It's that taken as gospel. Yeah, you know? <laughs> really, it really is making a plausible story out of it. Yeah, um, and uh, which actually the first season of the show on it was actually really fun to watch. Uh-huh. It just kind of really went up its own ass after that <laughs> point. But uh, yeah, how how long did you stretch that? Yeah, I mean, and it kind of gets me dangerously close to uh, conspiracy theory territory, which uh, scares me a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but um. But no, ancient alien theory is absolutely, you know, with the monolith going back and pushing humans to evolve, which is aliens coming and helping humans along in their their course of history. Exactly. No. And it's perfect. Exactly. And you said, and I mean, I really do feel that there's a lot of credible evidence that that's what that film's actually about, 2001. Um, Makes sense. It really does. It makes a lot more sense having given it that kind of framework. Yeah. Um, and you said a very key word that's going to actually bring up a topic I want to talk about, which I'm not sure if this counts as a puzzle piece. I think it does. Sure. So it's, you can be the judge, uh, master and commander of the of this podcast. Oh, okay. Um, uh, you just look so much like Russell Crowe that it just came. <laughs> um, so the the conspiracy theorists in the world, and that's too little broad for this, but essentially we talk about how that this film has permeated all culture. Uh, and it has, and mainly in a positive way, and in a, in a mainly in an entertainment way. And on one end of the spectrum, it actually inspired the real, you know, real NASA to play the music as they launched over Earth. And I mean, there's, I mean, so 2001's gone everywhere, but also the dark corners of of our society. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> and um, <laughs> this movie has ruined people's lives. People have gone. I'm not kidding you. It's true. They I have, know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. This film, 2001: A Space Odyssey, has put people in in crazy houses. They've put them in in mental wards. Uh, people have dedicated their whole lives to the conspiracy theory that 
that Stanley shot the moon footage, yep. which is the famous one I want to talk about, oh, which so of crazy. course is ridiculous. So crazy. Um, Leon Vitale, um, Stanley's close personal assistant for many years. He was a star in one of his films called Barry Lyndon, my personal favorite movie. And he went on to be a, a film or pardon me, a friend of his that worked with him closely. Uh, and there's a whole film about Leon called film worker, which you should check out. But I was talking to Leon actually personally, and we're just chatting and he goes, uh, you know, if Stanley made the moon footage, it would have been better. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, so I, so I love that joke. Uh, but yeah, so yeah, so this whole conspiracy element, there was actually, uh, I don't know, not to get off too far off topic, but there was these plates. I don't know if you ever heard about this, but instead of subway uh, sewer lids, people would find these plates that had information about 2001 just in the street, and no one knew how they got there, and it was a mystery for several years, like many, I think it was like 15 years, something like that. And no one knew how these plates got there, but they had these random pieces of information about 2001. It turned out a guy was living in his car. He had cut out a hole in the bottom of his car. He'd make these plates, and then while parked over the sewer, he would put them in and then drive off. Wow. And they tracked him down, figured it all out, took years to do, and people lost their mind, David. They lost their mind. And so... And then on the other positive end of that spectrum, one of my favorite things is John Lennon lost his mind, essentially saw this film, was so moved by it. Uh, he once said that it should play in a temple 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But what, a, you know, and he was a piece of shit bastard as sure. a human being. He could yeah. write a pop song, but man, was he a piece of shit. Yeah. But one of the nice things that he did do is he bought tickets uh, or he bought um, the amount of tickets for an entire year. Uh, and kept them at a, at the will call the box office for a theater so that people who couldn't afford tickets could go and see this movie because he thought it was so important that That's the awesome. human race actually sees this film. So what a cool story! Yeah, That's interesting. Yeah. So two thousand one, I know I don't know if that qualifies as a puzzle piece, but it has truly upset the apple cart yeah. in, in in positive ways and in, and has really damaged people too. I'll put it as a uh, addendum to uh, ancient er ancient alien theory. Yeah, uh, perfect. Yeah. Okay, goes right along with it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we. I mean, we. I don't honestly think we grasp the significance of this film. Yeah. I don't think we could ever really see how far it's reached. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but like you said, in in the rest of the world as well as in cinema, I mean, it's got yeah. so many. It's influential in so many different ways. Absolutely. Um. You know what? Why don't you go ahead and do one more, and okay. then we'll uh, we'll wrap it up. Sounds good. So, um, let's see. Do I want to do like a good movie or a funny one? I can't decide. Um, let's just go with kind of an interesting one. Uh, it's called The Simpsons. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, now, if, uh, if you know anything about The Simpsons, if you're a fan of The Simpsons, Kubrick is laid th like, throughout the entire thing. Uh, they, they parody The Shining. Uh, Bart dresses up as Alex from A Clockwork Orange. Uh, there's multiple, multiple references to 2001 A Space Odyssey, even with the with monkeys and the bone, the, you know, oh, the yeah. apes and the bone. So, yeah, there's literal influences, but also I even think in Matt Groening's style uh, and his, what I think what in his reach, because uh, Simpsons is maybe maybe the other pop culture phenomenon that we don't understand its influence. Uh, God, we could do a Simpsons <laughs> episode of this show. And, oh, my God. Without a doubt. Without a doubt, we could. Uh, and so, yeah, I think Kubrick... Um, kind of burned himself into the mind of Matt Groening. And I think there's literal, uh, literal ways that he's explored it and shown it and, and paid uh, tribute. But I think there's just, even in the actual approach, uh, there's something about kind of eerily 2001 about it. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, th I think that's a great one. It's funny you say it because I was thinking about the Simpsons at one point. I was thinking about, um, 
uh, TV shows and movies in general who have just maybe not as like a full on influence, but have just, you know, used little bits and pieces yeah. as, as basis for comedy over mm-hmm. the years, sure. you know? Yeah. Cause there's a lot of uh, great parodyable moments, <laughs> you know, throughout. Oh yeah. 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 So Stanley said there's only one deliberate joke and that's the zero gravity toilet. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Which I always laugh. I always get, I always get a good laugh out of it. And uh, it kind of makes me, what's funny about Stanley too is like, the consensus was that he was like this mad genius. And the more you learn about him, really, he was just like a normal guy from Brooklyn. Sure. You know, he was a normal guy from Brooklyn. He wasn't the recluse. He just didn't talk to the press. He didn't yeah. talk to, you know, he just hung out with his family and his friends. And he was kind of like a real blue collar guy. Like he had a real wicked sense of humor. He had dirty jokes. Yeah. Uh, kind of a foul mouth sometimes. He didn't have a lot of decorum sometimes. Uh, and yet he was supremely, supremely intelligent and just became a master of everything uh, that he ever looked at and studied. So he was the supreme genius, but he was also a real regular guy. Sure. And I love that he made a bathroom joke in 2001, perhaps the most highbrow movie of all time. There's like a funny toilet joke in it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and that kind of gives you an idea of that he was just a kind of regular guy like us. That's humanity. Exactly. We all poop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How would we poop in space? Stanley was curious. <laughs> so I'm going to uh, do the finished puzzle now. Okay. Um, and run down all of the movies we just discussed here. So let me see here. I got my notes. I got a lot here. Okay. So we've got Interstellar. Uh, Coen Brothers movies, specifically you mentioned Burn After Reading, uh, The Tree of Life, Solaris, uh, Moon, the Alien series, specifically Alien Covenant, Contact, Mission to Mars, uh, Midnight movies like Eraserhead, El Topo, uh, El Topo? El Topo, yep. yeah. Uh, Halo, Blade Runner, uh, Portal, Star Wars, uh, Mission to Mars, <laughs> uh, Smartphones. Um, what else we got here? Arrival, Spaceballs, Ancient Alien Theory, and Conspiracy Theorists, The Simpsons. <laughs> I think that was all of them. That's that a heck of a puzzle. Yeah, big, big list here. Big, yeah. big list. And there's but, a million more. Yeah, there's a million more. I know you got a bunch more there, you know, but yeah. yeah. No, I won't, no. Yeah, no. but uh, no, it's, it's such an influential movie. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I said to you as soon as I left the theater, I was like, this would makes so much sense to uh, <laughs> uh you know let's do this you yeah, know let's exactly. do a breaking it apart episode on this um yeah such an influential movie and a cool movie and like i said earlier i'm so happy i got a chance to see it in imax you know it's i'm just, so thankful you got to see it too yeah, yeah i mean i really yeah you know, it's funny I, like i said i've seen it so many times but i i made it a, an effort to see it a few times in, in imax while it's been playing yeah and i took people that hadn't seen it before i was like you must must see this so i even got a chance to take a friend of mine uh, who hadn't seen it at all. Nice. And, you know, his brains were leaking out of his ears yeah. at, at the end, you know. And that's a great feeling. And this movie has such an impact to a modern audience. There's, there's nothing, you know, old and antiquated about it for the most part. There's you know, minor little things. But there, you can still walk away going, how did they do that? Yeah. How did they do that? And what is this about? And I feel so, you know, you're, I think you're stupefied by it. You're inspired by it. It's yeah. so big in scope and yet so simple. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tightrope walk that I, I don't know if it will ever, ever really be duplicated oh yeah absolutely um well i mean you're a filmmaker um and you are obviously influenced by stanley kubrick yeah in many ways specifically this movie a lot would you say i would say that yeah actually really in, you know interesting anecdote about me 
is that uh, I saw this film when I was six years old for the first time, mm. and uh, I, I wanted to be an actor at that point. Which thankfully, that you know, God has taken me off that path. <laughs> no, so, no. So uh, I wanted to be an actor, and I saw this film, and there's an overture in the beginning of the film. Uh, or just under black. So there's a black screen and, and classical kind of horrifying music plays. And it puts you in that place, puts you ready for the film. And uh, I didn't, I thought the VHS tape was broken. Sure. To give you an idea of just kind of how young and, and malleable I was when I first watched this movie. Now, of course, I had no idea what the film was about. I don't know if I do now, let alone <laughs> right, then. Right, right. <laughs> let alone then. But the film has such an impression, had such an impression on me and left such just burn marks on my brain from the imagery and from the 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 tension and the ma- the mastery of the, of the craft that it it really almost single-handedly made me want to become a filmmaker uh when the music the, you know, like which we even talk about the iconic music which now has been ripped off on every you know every yeah. commercial every video every movie has that music uh, so that's another thing we could talk about for all, all night long sure. but when that music crescendos oh, and yeah. it says a Stanley Kubrick production 2001 Space Odyssey in my little 6-year-old brain I went I want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and I really mean, I, mean, I can almost whittle it down to that moment. Yeah. So that's was one thing. And then uh, just recently I have uh, been very, very fortunate uh, to come back uh, from England uh, where I actually had access to the Stanley Kubrick archive. Uh, and it's so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there is a, there's a Stanley Kubrick archive, which, um, which I was very lucky, uh, luckily um, had access to. I was uh, given five hours by myself and they just brought me anything I wanted, which was absolutely insane. Um, I was able, I have some kind of, uh, I guess I have some kind of insight into this movie that maybe some people don't have. Again, sure. I don't want to say I've solved the puzzle, you know, to use a bad pun. Um, but <laughs> well, it makes sense on the show. Right. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I was actually given the opportunity to go through logistical documents of how this film was practically made, uh, how things were organized and scheduled. I got to hold props and photographs. I actually held the original memos that Stanley would send to Arthur C. Clarke uh, wow. back and forth with handwritten notes and things of that nature. Uh, one of the most amazing ones that I actually was able to read. Still kind of, I don't mean to gush like a, like a fanboy, but it's still hard to wrap my mind it's, around. It's awesome <laughs> to hear. Seriously. Yeah. Um, there was, when, when Hal reads the lips of the space, you know, reads Dave and Frank's lips in the pod, yeah. when they plan to turn them off, they didn't know how to do that. And Stan, there's kind of a misconception that uh, Gary Lockwood, the the actor who played Frank Poole, came up with that idea. But I think that's a little bit of a misnomer, or at least maybe he was part of it somehow. But there was a memo that Stanley sent to Arthur C. Clarke that was like, "I think Hal should read their lips in the pod, and if this if this is successful, that's my favorite part. If this is successful, it'll be very effective." And it's like, yeah, it's the most famous part in cinema history, <laughs> yeah, right? Like, it was pretty effective. Yeah, I think it worked a little yeah. bit. So that was an amazing experience uh, to be able to be in there and, and have a special insight into all of his work, but also 2001 specifically. It must have been a wild experience. I mean, just to, especially for, for you, like being so influenced by, by his work to be able to see that kind of stuff. It's just, it's crazy. It is crazy. And it, I mean, it didn't even stop there. I mean, I thought that was how I can kind of top out on, uh, on that experience, but it even got crazier. <laughs> oh my <laughs> Which, God. Uh, I've just kind of been... Um, given a little uh, ability to tell everyone about it. So I'd love to share it with you a little bit. Awesome. Um, so I'm making a film right now, which I've talked about on other podcasts with you, but it was kind of, you know, it's a, it's a little up in the air. It's early in production, early in pre-production. So I don't want to say too much, Sure. Uh, but I have some pretty exciting news that I'd love to share with you now. So when I was in England, uh, in addition to uh, going to the Stanley Kubrick archive and feeling very fortunate, 
uh, I was actually invited to Stanley's home uh, and where he lived. He, you know, he's passed away now. He's been dead 19 years. Right. But I was invited by his widow, uh, the artist Christiane Kubrick. Uh, her and I were in contact. And uh, my film uh, is partially inspired by a real-life painting called The Portrait of Madame X. And that's where the film's title comes from, Madame X. Mm -hmm. uh, and so paintings are a huge theme of the film, and a, a huge visual theme. And Christiane is an artist. She's a painter. And some of her paintings have ended up in Stanley's films. So they were iconically used in A Clockwork Orange and in Eyes Wide Shut, among other films. Um, anyway, so Christiane and I got in touch, and, and she invited me over to their home, uh, a very... Uh, exclusive private place, which I again felt so honored and humbled to go to. Seriously, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And this hasn't sunk in yet. It has yeah. not sunk in. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, and we had a beautiful lunch together. They were extremely generous and warm. I, I met her brother, a gentleman named Jan Harlan, and Jan was also the executive producer on Barry Lyndon, uh, The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, and Eyes Wide Shut. You know, Stanley's brother-in-law, and sure. did a huge part to get, make those films a reality. Uh, and during the course of our lunch, we talked about my film, uh, and they have offered me very generously. Christian has offered me access to her paintings, uh, many of which that actually appeared in Stanley's films to now be a part of my film. That is insane. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it is insane. It's absolutely insane. Wow. Um, so yes, her artwork, which is absolutely beautiful. If you want to see it. You can also go to christianekubrick.com, and they are available for purchase. But let me use them first, obviously. Sure. Uh, I do have I have some uh, earmarked, uh, so you guys can't buy everything right away. But they are all, they are for sale. Uh, uh, there are iconic, beautiful masterpieces that I'm so honored to have in my film as a great way to to uh, honor Stanley and Christian, and without also. Um, Mimicking. I, you know, I, I, I told Christiana, I said, I don't want to be your husband. I want to be my own guy. Sure. But I would love to uh, you know, honor you guys for the huge influence you've had on, on my life and in my work. So, uh, yeah, it's been a very surreal, wonderful experience. His home was, was absolutely beautiful. It's kind of the mecca of the filmmaking world. Yeah. Uh, all films from the early 60s on were actually conceived, written, and edited on the property. So I got to be kind of a part of film history a little bit. That's amazing. Yeah, and give, yeah, just given access that has never really, really never been given. I'm kind of the only filmmaker um, that's been given this opportunity outside of Steven Spielberg to have this kind of association with the Kubrick family. And oh, I kind wow. of feel like uh, I feel I kind of feel like Rocky Balboa plucked from obscurity. Sure. Yeah, I feel like I'm fighting Apollo a Creed, you know, out of nowhere, yeah. uh, and giving this amazing, amazing opportunity, extremely rare opportunity. What What did you do when you got back to the hotel? Uh, wept for several yeah. hours. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, no, it's uh. You know, Stanley also uh, passed away on the premises, and so it was kind of a somber, humbling experience sure. you know, to be in that place. But the home is a supremely creative place. A lot of Stanley's uh, family still lives there, and you can tell that they honor him and cherish their, the memory of him, and they really grasp his importance to the world and world cinema. Is they don't they don't think I don't think they take it for granted. They they really the house is boisterous and artful and beautiful and fun, and they they everyone's creating and. And Christiane's work is all around the home. I was given a tour of the home, uh, which again was just blew my. I thought they were gonna. I thought we were gonna meet at an Applebee's or something. I didn't think they. I didn't, right, right. They'd ever invite <laughs> me into the home, of course. Uh, just that kind of candid um, availability and warmth was not something I expected. But wonderful people, sweet, and then very helpful. They want to be a part of this film uh, in this very beautiful and small way, and uh, I'm just very excited to include them and uh, have the Kubrick name and, and legacy and in some small way that I can honor it. That's fantastic, man. Thank you. I, 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 I'm just 
I'm just picturing, you know, your face as you're as you're walking in. You know, <laughs> I tried to stay pretty cool. Yeah, I really did. Yeah. There was at one point when I was left alone in Stanley's kitchen, uh, and this was right after uh, a wonderful woman, Tracy, who uh, helps Christiane at the home, uh, said, uh, "Do you know where this table's from?" And I said, "No, actually, I don't." And she goes, "It's from The Shining." <laughs> So Stanley's kitchen table is actually the shining table. I'm actually surprised you didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> right. Well, the thing is, I'm, you know, I sound like a fanatic, but I'm not really a fanatic. I, right. just, you know, I know, I know what information is available to know. Sure. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's it was kind of an obscure table. Once I looked at it, I went, oh, okay, I kind of I recognize it. It's yeah. when uh, when Shelley Duvall is like mixing something in a big bowl. It's right on that table. So yeah, no, it's um, but just their their uh, like I said, their openness and their kindness and Christian's availability and. And uh, I just want, you know, she's recently given me some permission to put it up online that her, of her involvement. And so you're actually the very first person I've been able to tell this story to. Fantastic. And so I want to thank you for allowing me to, to let the, let the world know all sure. of your listeners and uh, that there is a, a, a madamxmovie.com coming very soon where you have, awesome. you can see the paintings and you could read more about my experience at the home and, and meeting Christiane. And oh, that's great. I'm looking forward to that. Oh, thank you. Yes. Yeah. It's going to be great. Uh, it will also be linked directly to her page so you can access her artwork as well. And then there's also going to be uh, uh, com that's finally getting launched uh, simultaneously with the film's website that also has some information about my experience and also has access to more stuff about my filmmaking. Awesome. Well, your, uh, your new reel will be on there as well? My new reel is up on there, yeah. Kind of awesome. new 2018 reel. There's information Great about... stuff. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, and then there's also access to my web series, It's All Downhill From Here, which, of course, has its own site. Sure. You know, and it's all downhill from here. TV. You can read weekly comics. We can starting to put up content for that. So I'm staying very busy, uh, and of course, my priority is uh, to make this film at MX. Uh, put some blood, sweat, and tears in it, and uh, and honor Christian as much as she's given you know allowed me to. So yeah, pretty, yeah. So pretty amazing. Awesome. Very <laughs> cool. Well, looking forward to uh, checking out the site when it's up, and uh, I'm glad we did this episode. I'm glad we were able to talk about Kubrick for <laughs> for over an hour. Here. Me too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hopefully people find it as interesting as we do, or maybe, oh, maybe sure. I do. I try not to ramble too much. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's an excellent film. If you haven't seen this film, see it any way you can, maybe except a cell phone. Yeah. Uh, if you can see it in a theater, that's what's great about this film. It's so iconic that it does play. This is the 50th anniversary for it. So you can see it in theaters. I think there is a Chris Nolan supervised 70 millimeter playing through in LA right now. Yeah. I don't, I think it's touring. Uh, so you might be able to find it in your local cinema somewhere. Some comes here. I'm going to see it again. Yeah. Sure. Excellent. Yeah. And it gets better and better. It's a movie you will unpack for the rest of your life. It's a movie that will change as you change as all great pieces of art do. Oh yeah. So if you want a really amazing experience that changed basically everyone that saw it, go out and take a look at it. The Pull Bag is GCRN's comic book review and discussion-based podcast. Join me, your host, TF2 and Mike, and the rest of the GCRN crew as we make our way through the comics we are reading. Inside The Pull Bag, you'll also find back-issue classics and origins episodes of how we got into comic reading. You can find The Pull Bag every Wednesday on iTunes and on www.geekcastradio.com. Make your great escape into comics and jump into The Pull Bag today. Oh, yeah. Think of the fun.
All right, so that's that. 2001, A Space Odyssey, it was awesome to see an IMAX. Um, I think by the time this is up, it will be gone from IMAX. But, you know, I think everybody's been talking about it, so I wouldn't be surprised if they put it back in for a couple more dates here and there. Also, I think that 70-millimeter version uh, that Christopher Nolan restored is still going around making the rounds in different cities so if you can see it in theaters go see it in theaters because it's so worth it to see it that way um especially if it maybe is your first time like it might have been for me i'm not sure i honestly can't remember um (laughs) but uh definitely go see it or at least go get the blu-ray and watch it it's a movie worth seeing, especially if you're a fan of all things cinema, sci-fi, anything like that. And I want to thank Chris Cranock for being on the show and for sharing his story with us. Uh, it's an awesome story. I'm going to put the link to his uh, stuff in, in the show notes. That way you guys could check out some of his work. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing that movie once he starts getting it going and also the web series as well. Um, so that's it for this week. Well, actually, that's not it for this week because we will probably have an episode on Friday as well. Uh, but I wanted to get this one out right away. And uh, so, yeah, I think there's going to be a two-episode week. We'll see how it goes. Uh, this is actually the first time since we started this show that I actually have a few episodes in the can, which is kind of nice. Um, of course, here I am putting multiple episodes a week, and I'm going to just throw them all out there right away and then get back to where I'm like scrambling for a new episode again. But Hey, that's in my nature, I guess. But I'm glad you guys have been out there listening. Uh, August was actually our biggest month yet, um, as far as like downloads and subscribers is concerned. So I really, really appreciate you all out there listening. Um, if you're enjoying the show, I'd love it if you'd rate and review us on iTunes. Also, just send us some feedback directly. You can email me at bydavidrosen at gmail.com. Or you can uh, just tweet at us, you know, at PiecingPod. Uh, I want to hear what you think of the show. I want to hear what you think about the puzzle pieces that we suggest uh, here on these uh, episodes. If we think that we left any out, we'd love to hear what ones you think would have been good for us to talk about. Maybe we'll talk about it on a future episode. And uh, yeah, I'm really glad you guys are out there listening, but I do want to hear from you. So please get in touch. I'd love to hear who's out there. And uh, I guess with that, we'll close this one up. This was kind of a long one for us, but there was so much to talk about, so it makes sense that it was long. Um, So I'm going to close this one up by... Actually, you know what? I'm going to plug real quick. Um, As you know, I've been promoting my new Palindrome 360 virtual reality music video a lot lately. Um, But before Palindrome 360... Um, I also made a virtual reality music video called Constellations 360. This was a couple years ago with the same developer, New Line Videography. Um, You know what? It it fits in well with the theme of 2001 A Space Odyssey. So I'm going to tell you all to go check out that virtual reality music video. Uh, You can find it in um, on YouTube, on Vimeo, on Veer TV, on uh, where else is that thing on Um, Samsung VR, of course. Uh, pretty much all the big virtual reality uh, video sites you can you can check it out on or go to my website bydavidrosen.com for links uh, but check it out it's, it's a really cool spacey trippy uh, just awesome video I mean uh, new line videography did such a good job of bringing this this trippy idea that I had to life and it looks really cool so check it out and uh, I think it's probably a little bit inspired by the wormhole sequence in 2001. So that's why I'm mentioning it here. So yeah, check out Constellations 360. Also check out Palindrome 360 while you're at it. 
And I'm going to leave you with a, another piece of my music, one that also would be pretty well inspired by everything going on in 2001. This is The Void from my most recent album, A Different Kind of Dream.
and all points west.